Friday, friends. Greg Kokel here. The show is Stand to Reason. Uh, kind of. It's actually a dual show today. Um, let me tell you what's happening. I'm actually, at the moment, in Wisconsin, and I'm working on my manuscript, and uh, fortunately, I've almost got it done, God willing, but I'm pounding away at that. We, we still have shows, obviously, while I'm out of town for a couple of weeks, uh, and this is one of them. And it's a combination of Stand to Reason and Elisa Childers' podcast. And I'll tell you what happened. Uh, a few weeks back when I was over at CIA Cross-Examine Instructor Academy with Frank Turek and the crowd, Elisa's part of the faculty there, and they had a studio set up, and so we just did a podcast together for her podcast. And it's kind of a freewheeling conversation um, about culture and Christianity. Uh, she, of course, the author of Another Gospel about progressive Christianity and the concerns there, and we've talked about that quite a bit. But um, but we we had no agenda. We just sat down and just started rolling, and uh, I think we had a great lot of fun. So I decided to share that hour with you, with Elisa's permission. And of course, you can find her podcast at elisachilders.com. You can also find it on YouTube if you want to watch uh, the video portion of it. But uh, um, like I said, hopefully this is a special treat for you. It was for us. And so here is elisachilders.com podcast and yours truly. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And I'm here live in Cincinnati at the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy with Greg Kokel, oh. the one and only. So we're going to talk—I'm very excited for this conversation, Greg, because— as you know, me and your your colleague, Tim Barnett, are researching a book That's on right. the topic of deconstruction, so it's something we're thinking a lot about. But I think you, you've been in this game a long time. A bit. Right. <laughs> I, and in fact, we were talking, and you have debated Deepak Chopra. A lot of people may yeah. not be aware of that. Yeah. Michael Shermer, famous atheist, right. several others on various college campuses. Right. You have a radio ministry, a multimedia ministry. Mm -hmm. You've written amazing books, best-selling mm -hmm. books. And so I just want to glean from your wisdom, primarily when it comes to the topic of truth, mm -hmm. the nature of truth. I think if I'm you know, not exaggerating, I don't think this is an exaggeration to say that our culture has abandoned mm -hmm. the idea of truth. Yeah. Uh, Frank Beckwith and I wrote a book uh, in uh, what was the year we got published the year I got married in 1998. So it's been a long time, tw almost 25 years. And it was called Relativism. That's it. I mean, not a fancy title, but I like the subtitle, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, it was appropriate because people who are relativistic in their thinking, that is, they, they don't believe in truth or in certain categories of truth, in this case, moral truth is what we were talking about mm -hmm. mostly in that book. Well, they have no foundation. They're just floating around, so to speak. So what do they have to guide them if they're just floating around? All they have to guide them is themselves themselves and their feelings and, and whatever their convictions happen to be at the moment. Mm -hmm. Now, they can't say their convictions are true in any deep sense. All they can say is they're true for them. But all that means is that they believe them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean there's any further significance to them. You know, was Oprah Winfrey said at the Academy Awards, you know, live your truth or something like that. Well, that, that, that all that is, is narcissism. You know, I mean, really, yeah. that's all it amounts to. It's it's all about me. 
you do you, mm-hmm. or as I saw in one place, it said something like be your own hero, right? It well, was a that's, there's a quote actually from the Rachel Hollis book, Girl, Wash Your Face that I reviewed. And right. it says in that book, you should be the hero of your own story. Yeah. So this is interesting though, because what is a hero? A hero is someone we look up to because of some virtue that we want to accomplish. We are drawn to this because these people are above and beyond the standard, okay? But what this line does is it says, we are the end all. Mm -hmm. This is as high as it gets. And it's not even high or low because there's no reference point. It's just me. Mm -hmm. It's like you do you. It's like two two pronouns and a verb. And it's all Mm self-reflective. So there's... There's nothing there but us. Yeah. And 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 uh, uh, it, people don't think about it that way. They think right. this means freedom and this means authenticity as if these are noble things. And I don't think Oprah thought about this, but what if the person's truth is racism? Right. What if the person's truth is child molestation? Now, obviously, she wouldn't approve of that. But it shows the limitations of these kinds of slogans that trade so well in the culture. Mm -hmm. People want to be relativists. They they don't want somebody telling them what to do, but they don't want anybody to be a relativist regarding them. Right. And it's interesting, this whole idea of where this idea of live your truth came from, because obviously we're going to talk about postmodernism. We're going to talk about, we're going to define some terms, talk about the nature of truth. But- I think a lot of times when people say, speak your truth or live your truth, there's a a genuine impulse toward truth. And what I mean by that is often we see this even in spaces where maybe somebody has encountered some abuse Mm -hmm. and they're told, well, you need to speak your truth. But the problem with relativizing truth is that even for the victim of abuse, for them to speak, you want them to speak the truth about what happened to them mm-hmm. so that light can be shined on it. Abusers can be dealt with, right. that the, the whole thing can be resolved. Healing can begin. But in a way, culture has tried to empower people to speak your truth or live your truth even in that area. But by relativizing it to the self, yeah. then it sort of lowers that the what they're actually saying because we're wanting people to say what's actually true about reality. And if that's that's true in reality, it's not your truth. It's the truth, right? That's right. If, if uh, it's obviously a tragic event when something like that happens to a person and there is a, there is a legitimate, um, power. I think that, um, befalls somebody who is willing to acknowledge what happened and call it what it was Mm -hmm. evil, for Mm -hmm. example. And this, this kind of sometimes helps people to deal with it. They're facing the problem. They're, they're acknowledging it and maybe getting help from others that uh, sympathy from them or whatever. All this is good. It's all completely consistent with Christianity. But notice the word I used there. The word was evil. Okay. Mm-hmm. But this word only makes sense in light of a larger standard. Okay. What happened to you should not have happened. Right. It is uh, not the way the world's supposed to be, okay? But you can't have a way the world's not supposed to be, evil and these things, unless there is a way the world is supposed right. to be. That's the only way one can make any real sense about the genuine moral tragedy of what happened to a person in a circumstance right. like that. But if if there is no way 
that the world is actually supposed to be, then there is no moral tragedy there. What happened was something that made you feel uncomfortable or feel bad or feel pain. But we have to be careful if that's our worldview of not attaching moral qualities to that, like it's wrong to feel bad. Uh, to, it, it's wrong when you are made to feel bad. It is wrong when you are made to feel pain. Mm. But it's natural for us to do that. Mm. Why is it natural for us to do that? And here I'm going to refer to Francis Schaeffer, who is a great hero of mine. I actually got a chance to meet him. He died in the 80s, but he wrote some marvelous books that really ha- shaped my understanding of, uh, of of the world as a Christian and how some of these things work. And what he said is that, it, it as a matter of fact, we do live in God's world. Yeah. God exists. He made the world. And we are made in the image of God. And so, therefore, human beings are going to, if they're not thinking about guarding philosophical turf, they are going to end up speaking truths that they don't realize they're speaking. Mm. They're going to acknowledge the way the world is. And so, when we say things like that was evil, we say that even if we say we're relativists, and there is no truth of good or evil. Ultimately, mm-hmm. there are just different feelings. But we can't help ourselves. I call this the inside-out tactic in the tactics book. And that is because God has built something inside of each of us that is true about the way the world is, that we have a moral understanding of a fallen world. Mm-hmm. That's reality. And so when we're not guarding ourselves, we speak the truth in that regard. But the problem here is it doesn't fit in the the live your truth worldview, Mm -hmm. okay? Because that certain things are right and wrong and evil and virtuous. That's part of a worldview that most people, many people don't say they ascribe to. So what are you going to make then of these kinds of tragedies if you are a relativist of some sort? Yeah especially kind of the postmodern style where truth is just a matter of the cultural narrative and, you know, all of that. Well, then what do you make of the problem of evil? There can't be a problem of evil on that view. Right. But everybody knows something's wrong with the world. So the best that they can do is live a deeply confused life. Mm. Certainly not a flourishing life the way God wanted us. I've often heard this metaphor. I didn't think of this, but it it makes good sense in this type of conversation. When you think about being lost in the woods Mm -hmm. at night and it's cloudy sky, so you can't see any stars, you have no point of reference to know where you are. And what do you need in that circumstance? Yeah. You need a compass right. to be able to, to be a reference point to point you where you need to go. That's but right. if your own heart, your own feelings is your compass, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you might land toward where you're supposed to go, but chances are you're going to end up somewhere completely different. Actually, there's more to this metaphor than you realize because you cannot orienteer with a compass. You have to have a map with the compass. There you go. And then you orient the map to the land, and then you use your compass to navigate the land in virtue of the characterization of the land that you see on the map. And if the map's not accurate, even if you got a compass, you're not going to end up in the right place. And so there is this valuable thing, this compass that we have. Uh, if we're talking about morality, it's this sense of right and wrong. But also we need to have a standard to help us use that compass. Now, we understand, and this is what I was referring to a few moments ago, uh, Elisa, that, that being made in the image of God gives us a, an internal compass of sorts. 
And so this is why we're talking in terms of right and wrong. Francis Schaeffer called this moral motions. We have the capability of acting or talking in ways that embraces the notion of morality. But we have more than that. Um, we have we have a map, the Word of God, to give us more detail about the. We might have a sense of north and south, and, and I think there's a river over there that leads the. And there's the sun. I, th- I think it's over that way. And so kind of using uh, you know, a dead reckoning kind of mm-hmm. manner, you can get out of the woods to the river and maybe to the city and get out. Mm-hmm. But, of course, if you have a precise characterization of the land, you can go past it. And so Scripture talks about our ability to operate in these categories and have some common sense notions of right or wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of times they go south on us, especially when our feelings... Mm-hmm. Our hearts, the way we use the term heart, Bible uses the term in a little different way, but we, to, we mean our emotions if and our desires and our appetites. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the heart that we talk about isn't just our feeling, it's just our base appetites, mm-hmm. especially sexual, mm-hmm. okay? And so this is why a whole bunch of people, their identity is centered on their sexual appetite. That's right. what it is. That's where that's the where we've to. That's where we've come yeah. as a culture. And, I, and I'm not disparaging those people, but I'm just making an observation, okay? And when you think of it that way, yeah, their identity is centered on their sexual appetite or any other appetite. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds a little bit weird. But in any event, when our appetites overwhelm what probably is our moral common sense now we're going to get lost in the woods here to go back to our metaphor mm-hmm. because now something else is guiding us that that in many cases is not tied to human flourishing reality, mm-hmm. which is what God wants and what God right. tells us about. But now it's tied to our personal self-desire or appetites. And I won't even say fleshly appetites because that has a negative connotation. I don't mean it necessarily in the fallen sense. I mean it just in our carnal or physical appetites, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and and then this is very easy to take us off a sound course, mm-hmm. all right? And then we do everything we can to find rationales or language or even abuse of det- de- uh, of detractors to justify where we're at and to appear to sanitize what we're doing when all we are doing is pursuing naked self-interest. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is where we end up going. We get off the track and, uh, and bad things happen. Yeah. When you, when human beings operate in a way that they were not designed to operate, I'm using these words advisedly, then, and by the way, you don't even have to bring God into it if you want. You can just say nature design, but there is a design. Things mm-hmm. are made for certain purposes, mm-hmm. you know. Then if we use those in, in ways that they were not intended to be used, bad things happen. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's the consequence of living out of kilter with the, with the nature of reality. Now, of course, as followers of Christ, as Christians, Christian worldview, we can make sense of why the world is the way people discover it to be. Mm-hmm. We can make sense of that. God turns out to be the best explanation mm-hmm. for all of this stuff, okay? Yeah. So, but, but so many things that are moral and ethical issues that are consistent with the Christian worldview, you don't need a Bible to figure this out. Yeah. All you have to do is be a fairly obs- a, a, a attentive observer of, the, of reality. Mm-hmm. 
and, and what ends up in the longer term hurting or injuring human beings. That's all you got to do to realize like the, the smart path. And of course, it's really convenient in a certain sense that the smart path coincides with what God says about yeah. the world. And it's not just convenient. It's like that on purpose because God made that world. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to fit the way he describes the world to be. Why do you think that smart path has come so out of fashion today? Well, in a certain sense, it's not just today. It's always been in a out of fashion, you know, and, and, um, but even thinking in terms of what might be objectively true in the world or what might be, uh, objectively good or evil, it seems like there's an accelerated rejection of that. There is. And, you know, at different times in history, you know, that we go through these patterns. So I was born in 1950 in the fifties and early sixties. I thought there was a lot of common sensibility. We had our problems or whatever, but it it just there was more of a common sensibility about living that that seemed to dovetail with the Christian worldview. Then in the sixties things began to change, and we sowed uh, to the wind, and now we're reaping the whirlwind. So for, in the perspective of our biographies, we just see this acceleration. But that kind of thing has happened in the past, and even the distant past. You know, things got really crazy, and then it settled down more, and then it got really crazy again. We're watching it get really crazy. And I, I, I think the pattern here is goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Um, I wrote something last year um, that it just an observation that came to me and I thought, how oh, this works. And what I said was human beings are going to be ruled by one of two forces. They're mm. either going to be ruled by truth mm. or by power. Mm. Okay. By truth or by power. You know, the, there was a slogan on the left that was uh popular years ago. You don't hear it so much anymore because things have shifted, but it was speaking truth to power. power. Yeah. There you go. Speaking truth to power. Yeah. Now, of course, the left doesn't believe in truth anymore and they are in power. Mm. Okay. So things have changed dramatically, but notice the dichotomy there. Either you're going to live by the way things actually are. And so when I use the word truth here, I'm, I'm, I'm using it in a very precise way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not using it as a synonym for belief. Right. That's an important distinction. Yes, it is. Live your truth. That means live your beliefs. They're not their beliefs. They're your beliefs. They're unique. Well, that truth doesn't mean belief because believing something can't make it true. Right. Or there wouldn't be any difference between reality and fantasy. Classically, and when I say classically, I mean the ordinary garden variety definition of the word truth is that your understanding of the way things are, are in fact the way things are, okay? So a synonym would be fact, Mm -hmm. okay? So is it true? It's just another way of asking, is it a fact, all right? Mm -hmm. And and so uh, this is one thing that's that's helped, what's happened in the culture since the way you asked the question is that we have largely abandoned our commitment to what is true in areas that are inconvenient for us. Right. Now, what we can't say is, well, I don't like that, so I'm not going to do that. I mean, people do say that. Instead, this is the sanitizing. We're just going to blanket say there is none of that truth stuff. So you can't lay your truth on me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I don't know if you caught this in my words. There is none of that truth stuff. So you can't 
which means you're not supposed to right. lay your truth on me. It's a moral claim, an objective it's a moral, moral claim, claim. Of course. So it's like saying there are no objective moral claims. There is no truth. Here's one. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. Right yeah. in the same sentence. It's all the time. It, social media. It, That's exa- social media in a nutshell. It's absolutely yeah. thick with it. And so this is why I say that human beings are really common sense moral realists deep down inside because that's the way God made them. But when it comes to their projects, they want to play the relativism card. Mm -hmm. Okay. But like I said before, they don't want to play, have you play the relativism card uh, against them, you know? So I I remember this conversation. uh, Let me just think the, the, the talk show host that followed Larry King, the British guy, I can never remember his name. He was on for a while for a couple of years. Very, very left of center. I can't remember his name, but he, was, yeah. he, he replaced Larry King. Okay. okay. And then he was interviewing some, some Christian and the, and the issue of homosexuality came up and he's always beating this drum. And, um, Oh, is it Piers Morgan? Piers Morgan. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Piers Morgan. I thought he was an excellent host, but I thought he was kind of a rat too. You know, mm-hmm. he was a very good, he was much better than the person who preceded him as a host in my view. So it was interesting to listen to him, but man, he had a drumbeat about homosexuality. So you get a Christian out there and he's not, he's going to hang you out to dry. You know, he did that to Kirk Cameron, for mm-hmm. example, when Kirk was on that show. And so, uh, and Kirk was fabulous. He's a wonderful guy. And, uh, I, he lives near me and we get together on occasions, but he's the true blue, right? So he handled himself really well. But the comment from Pierce Morgan was, who are you to say? Mm-hmm. Who are you to say? Of course, now what he's doing is playing the relativism card, yeah. but that can be played back at him too. Who are you, so the, who to, say are who you, are to, you to say what I Exactly <laughs> right. Bingo. Yeah. Who are you to say? Who are you to say? Yeah. So it, you, you're complaining because I'm making a judgment. You're making a judgment back on me. Mm-hmm. And um, this, this the, uh, Jordan Peterson actually played this card once in a famous interview. Yeah, it went viral. A year or two yeah. and went viral. Yeah. But he was on his toes. And when he played it back in his host, this woman was completely flummoxed. Mm-hmm. She couldn't talk after he did, did that. And she's he's ready to go on, and she doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And then he says in this very difficult moment for her, he says, gotcha. <laughs> and he actually didn't need to do that because everybody knows she'd been had. Yeah. And so he didn't need to underscore it. Mm-hmm. But uh, nevertheless, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. These are the non-judgment crowd that are completely judgmental. These are the non-bullying crowd that bully everyone viciously who isn't just like them. So what this amounts to is a deeply confused community of people, Mm -hmm. a deeply confused way of living. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to offer is... Um, a way of understanding the world that is coherent and that fits together, that matches reality. But guess what? It doesn't tail certain kinds of judgments and you can't avoid it. Mm. What we're trying to do, as Jesus said, is judge properly. Mm-hmm. Not just have a condescending judgment like he uh, he spoke against in uh, Matthew chapter 7, where he says, judge not, mm-hmm. lest you be judged. Well, he didn't stop there. He kept going and he qualified it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a kind of a condescending thing. The log, log is in your eye and you're picking yeah. at the 
speck in somebody else's eye. Yeah, don't eye. judge hypocritically. Yes, don't judge saying. hypocritically. But we are to assess. Mm-hmm. Don't participate in the evil deeds of darkness, Paul said, but even expose them, mm-hmm. right? So there is a role of appropriate judgment in the Christian's life. And so if we're going to invite people to participate in reality, that is, the characterization of the world that the Christian worldview provides, it fits because it's accurate. That means they are under a God. Mm -hmm. They are not God. They are under a God. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the kingdom of God is the rulership of God. And so when John the Baptist and Jesus, the apostles, whatever, preach the kingdom, they are beckoning people back underneath the rulership of God, the appropriate role. God in their lives as a sovereign, and all the other good things that go along with it, a life of human flourishing. Mm-hmm. So when we're when we're communicating to the rest of the world our view, we're not just saying, don't do those things. That's bad. You're going to get whooping for right, that kind right. of thing. We're, we're, we're beckoning them back uh, to a lifestyle of wholeness and goodness. Beauty. And, 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 and can, yeah. think of um, Bruce Jenner. I mean... Bruce Jenner is a broken human being, yeah. and he will be broken for the rest of his life because his mind tells him one thing and his body tells him something else, and that will always be in conflict. God didn't make Bruce that way. That's brokenness that should mm. should be healed, could be healed. We're inviting those kinds of people back to a, a, a world under God where that kind of thing can be healed. Mm. Isn't that it's, it's an amazing story? It's good news, right? This is why we call it the good <laughs> yeah, news. But you know, I've I've observed this too. It's interesting that to us, it's like this is the best news ever. Your brokenness mm. can be made whole. You can uh, bring yourself in alignment with your actual Creator. How mm. amazing is that? But that's only going to be good news for people who recognize that they're sinners, and yeah. you can only recognize that you're a sinner. If objective truth exists in, right. in specifically objective morality, if something can be objectively good or objectively yeah. sinful. So you see the move here. I mean, if you stand back and think strategically about how these things happen, and, and this is Ephesians 6 stuff. So Paul warns us that there is a battle going on that's in heavenly places, spiritual powers, and there are schemes in play. All right, that's the language he uses. Now, I'm not the kind of, you know me, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to find a demon under every bush. But there is a genuine spiritual battle. And uh, if if you want to dissuade people from repenting from sin, you tell them there is no such thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So therefore, there's nothing to repent from. Mm-hmm. Or even worse, not only is there no such thing as sin, but the, the summum bonum, the greatest good, is to be authentic. Right. And authenticity is whatever is inside. Right. And you want that to come out. And, and if you think out. you're inherently good, why would that be? That would be yeah, great. Sure. You want to let that out, right? right. Let that goodness That's out. Right. I heard a line, though, the other day here at CIA, and uh, I can't remember who said it, but he said, the only ones that are in the, everybody's out of the closet. The mm-hmm. only ones that are in the closet right now are Christians. Christians, yeah. It was That's Bobby. Right. Bobby said that. Yeah. And, and they're in the closet because they're being bullied by the rest of the culture, mm-hmm. bullied into silence, or even punished into silence mm-hmm. because they get canceled, you know? Yeah. And uh, I mean, we, you and I have YouTube friends that just demonetize. This is their livelihood and they're demonetized. I, I've been demonetized. Oh, well, so there you yeah. go. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, over I, two, two topics, the abortion topic and the sexuality topic. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
See, okay, you, you don't have a voice now. You have no place at the table. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is the tolerance crowd, right? Right. This is the people who are open to all these. Live your truth. Mm-hmm. Where is Oprah when you need her, right? <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. And, and so, uh, but no, there is no tolerance. Tolerance yeah. is a one-way street. Yeah. They are tolerant of everybody who thinks exactly like mm-hmm. them. So, by the way, notice my equation. We're going to come back to that now. So, the equation is you either it's either truth or power. Okay, there's no place for truth because you determine truth by people of good uh, of good intention and and, uh, and charitable attitude, hammering things out to try to figure out what's truth. But you don't say the right things, so you're silenced. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. like that. And so what is being used now, it isn't the, the effect or the, the, I don't want to say power of truth because I'm going to use power in a minute, but it, it's the, the uh, influence of truth, the role of truth in our discussion. That isn't the thing that makes it. It's now it's just the raw power to silence opposition. That's right. Yeah. And that's what we truth see. Truth or power, just like you said. That's before. right. You know, I remember years ago, this is probably at least 15 years ago, maybe. Uh, 10 to 15 years ago, I remember the first time I heard about postmodernism. Mm-hmm. The first time I heard about it, the person I heard about it from was presenting it as a positive correction yeah. that the church needs. I, I remember being at a, a state in my faith where I, I had a lot of emotional difficulty at that time. And uh, I had toured a lot as a Christian artist. So I had mm-hmm. observed different churches and honestly, I'd observed some things I had critiques for, um, mm-hmm. maybe some hypocrisy, uh, um, the, the kind of the rise of the celebrity pastor thing that was sort of mm-hmm. rubbing me wrong. And yeah. so by the time I came off the road, so speaks the celebrity well, I performer. Mean, yeah, I understand. You know, you know what? <laughs> well, you're on the inside, so you see yeah. the liabilities. Yeah. But. Yeah. Especially. And I think especially in a church setting, it's just mm-hmm. got an, a, a special Unseemly. complication. Right. Yeah. Right. Got you. <laughs> Um, so I had some critiques for the church, right? And so I remember talking about those critiques of maybe evangelical culture that I had with other people. And I remember this person said to me, um, you know, and this actually isn't anyone I wrote about in my book. So in my Mm -hmm. book, I talk about this, this was a different um, scenario. And this person had said, well, you know, there's this, this new thing that's coming around. That's really, um, correcting it's new kind of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a much needed postmodern correction mm-hmm. to some of the overly rationalistic and, mm-hmm. um, you know, reasoned beliefs that are, that are just so heavily leaning on your mind and logic right. and reason and all these things. And it's, it's really what the church needs to correct all that stuff. And at the time, I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that feels right. Mm-hmm. That's my first mistake. Right, right, right. right. That feels great. Like that feels uh-huh. really good. And then I began to see all of my friends who were embracing that philosophy start falling away from the mm-hmm. faith. And I couldn't understand it because we had started out in the same place. We ha- we saw some of the same abuses or maybe some of the same uh, problems that we were critiquing and had some corrections for, but they were willing to throw the entire gospel out with it for this right. new kind of Christianity. And so it was really interesting to me. Which was the me. title of a book. Right. It, that cer- it certainly was. Right. Yes. And so I remember just thinking when I got into apologetics, postmodernism was really presented as such a negative thing. Like we've got to answer postmodernism, mm-hmm. but the first time I heard about it, it, it was good. presented like we need to bring this into yeah. the church. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you remember back maybe 10 or so years ago when some of those early emergent writings. I remember writings, that far back. Actually, <laughs> like yes. Brian McLaren and Tony Jones <laughs> yeah. and some of these guys started well, Dan writing. Dan Kimball wrote also. That's right. And so yeah. Dan, just for the record, Dan's a great guy. Yeah. I've known Dan a long time. He's Faithful. been a standard reason yeah. guy. But he was with that group and he saw 
saw maybe the potential. There was a rising secular movement started in architecture called postmodernism, yep. and then it got into everywhere else. Okay. And this was a, a new twist on there is no truth in the sense that we used to think of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is not anything new. This is relativism. Uh, with a, a little bit of new trendy face to it. And there's a, a little bit of, of, of nuance in terms of how they characterize the truth project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it has to do with language and communities, linguistic communities and stuff like that. But nevertheless, it, it lands kind of on the same place. And I, and since this was a development in the culture, um, there were some who saw, well, there's some value to this for the church. But then instead of being aware of the liabilities and critiquing the bad parts, there was a wholesale embrace. And this is where Dan Kimball says, I'm not going for that. Right. Okay, and others, not, too. Others yeah. said the same thing. That's why that movement kind of split. Early yeah. On. Well, it, 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 it didn't go away, as you know. No, it, it just yeah, went no, underground and came up with a, right. a new name, which you've been addressing, obviously, with the progressive Christianity. But uh, I, what I, I bring it down for uh, because here's a guy who is who cared about the church. And he was looking about different ways to communicate with the emerging culture. But instead, unlike the others who adopted the ideas, he was trying to address the ideas and be sensitive to those ideas, make changes in the church as necessary to adjust to that new cultural thing. And uh, just like the Jesus movement did, you know, decades before. Where, where I became a Christian, your dad was such an important part of, for example. I, I, I you know, that was a, a, an appropriate corrective in some ways, but if you buy the whole system, it 86 mm. is Christianity. That would mm. mean it, it's Christianity's done with, you know, takes mm. the foundation. Dan saw this, and so he backed off of that and then began critiquing this. So he didn't mm. follow his buddies in this thing. Right. And he's been a true blue ever since. Obviously, mm-hmm. he continues to write books right. that uh, are addressing these things. But, but the, uh, but yes, this trend really, it was, it was appealing to a lot of people, but it's an anti-realist view. And what I mean by that is it's this postmodern view essentially says you can't really know what's yeah. real. Yeah. All you can know is what your community, okay, right. uh, has socialized you to know mm-hmm. through linguistic, uh, influence. All mm-hmm. right. And so, um, now, yes, that whole thing has faded as a thing. There's still postmodernists around. Mm-hmm. They don't call it that anymore. Mm. Now, the influence of that is expressed in different ways. And it's interesting when Brian McLaren first came out with a new kind of Christian, and he was probably the most well-known proponent of postmodern Christianity. Mm-hmm. The emergent mm-hmm. village was their right. enclave, you know, yeah. with uh, Doug Paget and, and, mm-hmm. and the others uh, that, that when he first came out with that, oh, I'm trying to remember the point I was going to make here with this, but, um, it, it was very, very popular. And when I saw how he was applying those principles, I thought, well, this is just old fashioned liberalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's not any yeah. different than liberalism. Now he lands on the liberalism square from a different, different path, route, yeah. right? Yes. The postmodern path, mm-hmm. not the classic liberal path, but it's, they end up at the same place. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now they got new vocabulary. Now they went underground. They come up as the progressive church, but it all the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So these basic things that we see happening, 
are, are not new theologically. Right. And, uh, and, and the, the essence of it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. It sure does. So think about what happened in Genesis three. And so here I'm going to do my, tr- my, my truth power kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Because, uh, what God did in the garden is he gave Adam and Eve a, a, a way to live that was true to the way the world was as he made it. Okay. So there were physical realities truths and there were moral truths as well don't eat from this tree mm-hmm. okay and what does the text say it says that eve talking about her process there before adam got involved she looked on it she saw that it was good for food mm-hmm. it was good to make her wise mm-hmm. and all these other lies but it just it all it it it, it appealed to her appetites mm-hmm. It appealed to everything on the inside. Mm. She wasn't thinking about the obligations on the outside. Now, this inside-outside distinction just is the difference between relativistic mm-hmm. truth, subjective truth. Based on and, the subject. Exactly. Yeah. Inside, live your truth. Mm-hmm. And outside, which is the way reality is structured. God's world, not just the physical world. And that's where gender would fit in mm-hmm. male and female. Yeah. He created them. God made human beings to be um, uh, binary in their sexuality. Why? Because that's how they are fruitful and multiplied. No duh, right? So this is a few, no. So just like then people now are saying no to God's world, and no to his commands. So no to physical reality and no to moral reality and saying yes to whatever's inside. That's the subjective objective. That's relativistic thinking mm-hmm. or objectivistic truth. This is live your truth. This is, I'm trying to think of the, I can't think of a nice slogan because live your truth sounds like, live the but truth. live the truth. There yeah. you go. Thank you. Live the truth because the truth Mm-hmm. is what is ultimately going to prevail, mm-hmm. not your truth. Yeah, It's reality that is going to define our lives, not just our passions or appetites at the moment. As I've studied the deconstruction movement, I've made observations that it really reflects everything you're talking about. It's mm-hmm. ultimately at the bottom of the thing is a rejection of absolute truth. And I've had people come into the comments on my blog posts and articulate it to where they're saying, Hey, no, we're not, a, we're not rejecting the idea that objective truth exists. Okay. Maybe it does, but what they're rejecting is the idea that anybody can actually know what it is when it comes to things like religion and especially uh-huh. morality, like right, moral right, obligations. Right. And so it seems to me what what emerges, uh, as I think about postmodernism, which I think has really influenced the deconstruction movement quite a bit through some postmodern philosophies coming from the sixties, uh, but it, it's all about authority for what you think is true. Is mm-hmm. your is your authority the Bible or is your authority sure. the, yourself? And ultimately, every deconstruction story that I've listened to, uh, everything that I've read from deconstructionists, although they may not put it in words just like this, but my observation is that what it really comes down to is that deconstruction as a phenomenon, as we see it, is really a rejection of objective truth. Mm-hmm. And it's marked by... <laughs> A, a real hyper skepticism mm-hmm. toward any sort of truth claims in the realm of religion and morality. Mm-hmm. So, in what I've observed is, if you, you know, I'm going to try to put myself in the mindset. Sure, you know, yeah. if I if I think 
that objective truth cannot be known about morality, about spirituality, then when Christians come along and start making all these objective truth claims, like Jesus is the only way to God, hell is a real place, Mm -hmm. you must be saved, you are a sinner. I mean, these are difficult truth claims, right? Mm -hmm. But if my core fundamental belief is that objective truth on those topics can't actually be known, then I'm going to be extremely suspicious of the Christians coming around claiming to know what those truths are. The irony, though, about that is they are not neutral regarding these ideas. Right. Whether they are theological, strictly theological, like hell, for example, um, or they are moral. They are not neutral about these things because they make moral assessments all the time and they make theological ones. No, there is no hell. You think there's a hell? There isn't. Right. I mean, and they it will isn't say like that, ske- they will declare that as yeah. an absolute truth on but, TikTok. But it's also but it's also tied to a moral claim mm-hmm. because they think if you know if there is a God and maybe some progressive Christians, I don't know, but I, I suspect they're theistic very broadly and, and very uh, yeah, in a very general sense. But if he he is good and he's loving, and so he would not create a place like hell. Well, notice that you're making a moral claim there. Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking about the moral quality of God. So you're saying you do seem to know something mm-hmm. religious and you do seem to know something moral. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, let's, let's, let's stop this little game that we're playing about. You can't know religious truth. You can't know moral truth because you keep proclaiming both of them mm-hmm. in our discussion, excuse me, in our discussion. So the real question is, um, does anybody have a right claim to the claim? In other words, do they have yeah. justification for holding what they do? And just a little observation here. It's a, it's a historical quirk. Postmodernism is postmodernism. Okay. Modernism is mm-hmm. kind of an enlightenment sensibilities. Okay. So reason rules. Man is the center, so to mm-hmm. speak. It's, and, and, uh, uh, he's the man, humans are the measure of all things and, and reason is the way you find truth. You have the scientific method and all that other stuff. But of course, if reason is the way you find truth, this is the thinking of postmoderns. Look at all the bad things that came from. We got imperialism. We have oppression. We have racism. Mm-hmm. Why do we have that? Because some people thought they were right and other people were wrong. Right. Yeah. And when you think you're right and other people are wrong, then you abuse your power against other people. Then you have victims and then you have victim classes and you have critical race theory and mm-hmm. uh, equity. I always get diversity, the, uh, equity, inclusion. There you go. Cause I know it's like EID is a bomb and DIE is dead. So it's the other one. It's you some know. letters. It's some yeah. letters. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. The alphabet soup thing. But, um, and so, but you, you get those circumstances that people are now complaining about. So how do we correct that is the idea. Mm-hmm. We become postmodern right. and we quit making these kinds of objectivist absolute assertions about yep. the nature of reality and then we'll all get wrong get along but the frankly what has happened and this is not a secret at all is what is the power base has just shifted that's right that's all it is and the and the and the and the political left now and it's not a secret is just a, well arguably even more abusive mm-hmm. oh, than yeah. they used to be because there was a certain sense in which in which uh the enlightenment and uh, Christianity had a kinship and that was at least in the life of the mind. Yeah. 
we have a functioning mind that could discover what truths were. There was a disagreement on what the truths actually were. Mm-hmm. And, but, but at least there, there was an epistemology, we'll say, how do we know what we know that we shared? Okay. But when postmoderns came along, they just said they abandoned that epistemology. Okay. So you can't, you can't know anything that's true. So what's left now? There is no truth left. Yeah. Just, just power. power. That's yeah. all that's left. And we see it everywhere we turn the exercise of power yeah. in, in, in the face, in the teeth of evidence on issues to the contrary. And what's so inter- fascinating to me about that is that in, uh, culture at large, uh, there is this sense in which truth claims made from maybe a Christian perspective are viewed as power grabs. Yeah. And I wonder if that power is threatened. So it's yeah. like, well, if, you know, sometimes if you have a motivation, you kind of think everybody else does. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> you know, I wonder projection. If, projection. I wonder if there's some of that going on because yeah. it's, I notice that every time when, when I'm posting about, uh, maybe things that have uh, to do with the nature of objective truth, somebody will come on and start psychoanalyzing what I, what mm-hmm. kind of power I'm trying to, to get sure. a hold of or what institution sure. am I protecting or trying to prop up or who yeah. am I trying to control? And right. I'm thinking like, why, why does that even occur to you? I'm right, just right. making a claim about what no, reflects yeah, reality. I suspect you know? there's some projection going on, but there's something else going on too, because notice that when you are raising an issue, maybe an ethical issue or something like that in your conversation or theological in the people who are objecting, they change the subject. Mm-hmm. They change the subject. Yeah. Instead of addressing the issue and trying to deal with the issue and say, Elisa, I get where you're coming from. I understand your thing, but I think you're mistaken. Here's the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, it, it's not may the best idea win. They ignore whatever case you were making and they do one of two things, both which are informal fallacies. Mm-hmm. One, they go after you, mm-hmm. you know, Jezebel. Yeah. I know you've been called that, you know. I have. Yeah. So. <laughs> I just read about Jezebel last night. Oh, yeah. well, you know, toss from the thing, the dog's eater and all that. Yeah. She was nasty. You're not nasty. Thank you. But what they're trying to do is associate her nastiness with you by calling you a name. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's just a character assassination or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but they're doing something else too. And it's an, so that's a ad hominem for the homeschool people. They understand what, how that works or the, the apologetics nerds. Uh, However, but it's, it's a fallacy. Mm-hmm. It's a distraction from the real issue. But they're doing something else too. And they're saying, I know your motives for doing yeah. this. Okay. I know your motives. This is the power grab. Notice they're changing the subject again right. in a different way. They're not dealing with the issue. Yeah. Now, it seems to me if they've got a really good case, yeah. why don't they state it instead of attacking your character or saying something else is going on with her that's motivating her to do this, mm-hmm. that dastardly thing, mm-hmm. without identifying it as, in fact, a dastardly thing. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, first, you have to show that a person is mistaken mm-hmm. before it's reasonable to ask why they're mistaken. Yeah, They're just saying, here's why you're mistaken. This is a power grab. Mm-hmm. But they've never shown you that you're mistaken. Yeah. And I know you, you're, you're offering principled points, whether theological or moral or mm-hmm. a combination of the two regarding how people are understanding God or how they're living their lives inconsistent with what God wants. Okay. That's controversial. Fine. What do you think the reasons are that I'm wrong and you're right? Let's just knock that around. Mm-hmm. But when you start calling me names, you know, you're a Jezebel. Well, you're ugly. <laughs> 
No, no, I wouldn't say that. But the point I'm making right. is, how is it different? I'm rubber, you're glue. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right, right. It's like, yeah, right. It's 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 the it's you got that from your kids probably or something. I don't know. But, I think we said that when we were kids. Oh, I'm is that right? All right. Whenever yeah, you yeah, say yeah. bounces off, bounce it back to you. All your other fingers are pointing <laughs> yeah. back at you. You know that That's one. That's right. So, um, yeah. So there, there, there is a, it's, it's just, it turns out, it's funny we're talking about kids because children, because that's the kind of behavior we're seeing, Mm -hmm. childish behavior, Mm -hmm. because it's the only thing they have to resort to. Mm -hmm. Call names, you know, commit other fallacies or whatever. And by the way, I would never tell anybody they're ugly, even if they were, because ugly people can be right. That's right. Right. Truth doesn't and, care how, what you yeah, look like, what you right. believe, how and, old you and, are, and also people how much with, of a jerk you are. Yeah, that's right. Also people with illicit motives and people who have bad character, bigot, they can be right too. Yeah. Those things are not related. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're distractions. Yeah. Now, as Christians, we don't want to be any of those bad things. And if we are, shame on us. But we're getting shamed not because we're those things, but because we have ideas people don't like. And this is the best way they have to get yeah. at us and make us look bad rather than dealing with the issue. Well, as we close out here today, we were talking before we went on the air about what a chaotic time this is, especially for people who are really wired for truth. I was just talking with somebody, I think it was yesterday, where they they know someone who's just gone really reclusive because... They just don't know how to cope with this abandonment of truth and everything is so cha- chaotic is really the word. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, you know, what you, you have so much wisdom. I've just loved this conversation. You know, Thank you. Yeah, we should call it like fireside with Greg, you know, just <laughs> if there was a fireplace here, yeah, just glean right, from right. your wisdom. Um, but what wisdom would you leave anybody who might be listening to this or watching this who's feeling really overwhelmed? Right. With the, with just this onslaught of yeah. chaos coming yeah. from relativism. Well, I, I'm flattered by your comments. I actually don't feel very wise in this circumstance because I, I identify with people who are experiencing that sense of being overwhelmed with everything. All right. And, um, and more and more what I'm thinking now is, is not so much in terms of how, uh, how can I think of persuasive ways to engage culture, to get them thinking? I mean, it's a lot of what we do at Stand to Reason. The tactics book is there. I'm writing another book right now called Street Smarts. That's a kind of an offshoot of tactics to help people new, maneuver more in these difficult times. But a, a big part of what I'm thinking now, and as I get older, this is more and more um, it, um, I don't know, relevant to me. It's always been relevant, but it's, it's more central to me. Um, we have an audience of one yes. to please. That's right. Not everybody else in the world. And it may turn out that whatever we say, how graciously or uh, thoughtfully we put it, people are just going to spit in our face, mm-hmm. whether metaphorically or or actually. And okay, so then the the important thing is the audience of one, being faithful standing firm. I think of Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do, do no, no other. other. Yeah. And uh, and many others in history that are unsung heroes of the faith who who did that. I, a couple years ago, all of these dear Christian men who were beheaded on the beach there in the Middle East yes. by Muslims, and all they had to do was recant. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had some, one of our speakers had some association with that group when he went to the Middle East and was doing some teaching with the families, mm. indirectly with the families. And he learned that the parents, the families were praying for the lives of their sons and their husbands and their brothers 
until they realized that the only way they would survive is if they mm-hmm. recanted. And then they were praying that they wouldn't recant, yeah. which is a, a essentially sealing their death yeah. but in their prayer, which is what happened. They didn't recant, but that was the, the price that they paid. And I don't think we're going to pay that price here, uh, frankly. Um, however, you, you never know. We're paying a much steeper price than we ever used to pay. Mm-hmm. But I, I want you to think, uh, Elisa, the, and also for your viewers, I, I want you to think about this passage. It's easy to remember. Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 15. So it's Mark 15, 15. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now here's where Jesus uh, is. It's the end of the gospel. So it's at the um, passion. He's actually with Pilate being tried by Pilate. And Pilate doesn't want to convict him because he knows he's innocent. And you know, so the Jews are, you know, they're all worked up because they, they're envious about Jesus and whatever. And his wife has been telling him, leave this Jesus yeah. guy alone, you know, but he doesn't know how to get out of this. So he offers the release of one of the prisoners and Barabbas is an option and Jesus is an option. And he's thinking, well, maybe they'll go for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, Pharisees worked up the crowd to ask for Barabbas and that's who they ask for. Mm-hmm. And then he says, what do I do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him. And here's verse 15 of chapter 15 of Mark. Wishing to please the crowd. Wishing to please the crowd. He released Barabbas, had Jesus scourged and crucified. And I never want to be on Pilate's side. Yeah. But so much of Christendom seems to be going that direction. That they are, they are, they are, they are siding with the villain. Mm-hmm or the villains, as the case may be, and they are turning their back on the Savior. Mm-hmm. When I die, I want to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. I do not want to be the one who, wishing to please the crowd, yeah. betrayed my Savior. I want to be the one who hears from the only one who matters, well done. And so my encouragement to Christians are, you know, get your apologetics squared away. Get your theology squared away. Get your understanding of why the Bible teaches these things you can rely on. Do everything you can, but when the when push comes to shove, your attitude is, here I stand. I can do no other. Well, that's a great place to end. Thank you for being with us today. It's been a, a real pleasure. I always. <laughs>